Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, everybody. I have an announcement. My new book, Traumatized, is available for pre-order now. In it, I cover PTSD and complex PTSD, the symptoms we can experience when we have been traumatized, and, of course, ways we can overcome these and heal. There is honestly too much helpful information in this book to list it all, but if you've ever wondered if you've been traumatized or are working to overcome past trauma, this book is for you. I cannot wait for it to be out in the world and help anyone suffering, so please pre-order yours today at katiemorton.com. You can ask her why breakups suck or why you've hit a plateau. Inquire all those questions you've always wanted to know. Ask Katie anything. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Ask Katie Anything. So today, I think I have 11 questions. When I was putting these together, there was an extra one where I was like, oh, I kind of like that one too. So I added that one in. So we should just hop into this because we got a lot of stuff to cover. Um, If you're wondering who I am and if you're new, welcome. My name is Katie Morton. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist. I've been practicing since 2009. Is that right? Yeah, 2009. Um, And I my whole goal is really just to educate people and empower people by offering mental health information so that you can have the tools and the resources and the words to put to what you're going through or what your loved ones are going through. And overall, just remove the stigma around mental health. We all have a mental health and allow people, you know, hopefully that empowers people to get help sooner rather than later. Also, that's kind of one of the goals too. So welcome to the community. It's wonderful here. People are nice. People support each other. I don't allow for any kind of, you know, hate or shit talking or trolling, people get blocked and muted immediately. So we try to keep this community as happy and healthy as possible. Obviously, that you know, people can still sneak through. But most of the time, you know, we keep it safe and keep it happy. So welcome. Um, if you're wondering where I get the questions, I get them on my opinions that don't matter YouTube channel. So if you didn't know, I have a podcast with my husband called Opinions That Don't Matter. It is not mental health related. So don't, if you want mental health content, don't go there for it. That's, it's just us shooting the shit and making jokes. So, um, but that is, that's the channel because that's where that podcast lives in video form as well as this podcast in video form. And in the community tab of that channel is where you can ask your questions. I prompt you on, usually it's like a Monday asking for them. I won't be uh, filming over the holiday. These are going out because I film ahead of time. So you just have to wait until January when that will prompt will come back up and then you can pop your questions in. Without further ado, let's get into those questions. Okay. Now the first question says, Hey Katie, how can I know if I'm still attached to my therapist or if it started to be a healthy bond? Also, how do I know that everything I feel toward my therapist isn't just transference? How would you know the difference if I truly like someone or something? I feel like it's always, it's um, just always transference. This is a great question. Now, I think attachment with our therapist, it's a, it's a very fine line. So I'm just going to try to describe it to you so that you can hopefully put your own uh, relationship or own thoughts about your therapist into it and kind of figure it out from there. So the first thing is... Yes, I was checking if we're recording. Sorry, we are. <laughs> you know, things that you wonder about all of a sudden, you're like, holy moly. Okay, but when it comes to a therapeutic relationship, the fir- the the main crux is, do we feel the urge to get a hold of them, talk to them, or want to see them outside of session? Now, this can happen for a lot of reasons. If we are really struggling and we feel the need to let them know we're struggling, that's very different. But this urge to constantly keep in contact, or if we've had the thought that like, I just really wish we were like best friends, like I would love to be roommates with them. If we have thoughts like that, that is when we're tiptoeing in this like unhealthy attachment space. Because I can tell you, honestly, I've never thought of being friends with my therapist. Honestly, it'd be kind of weird because she like knows too much about me. And I just don't really... Uh, you know, not that my friends don't know that much about me, but it's like the dynamic is weird because I know nothing about her, right? 
So, so that's when it, it starts to get unhealthy and we have an unhealthy bond. Um, so I'd be aware of that. Also, it can be some of that, like if we feel like this relationship, if we're honest with ourselves, getting into this transference part of this question, if we're honest with ourselves, can we look at this relationship and say it doesn't mimic or mirror other relationships we've had? Like, is this the same relationship we had with our mom or our sister or our favorite teacher who abandoned us at one point? Are we mimicking that in some ways? Do we find ourselves treating them like someone else? This might be hard for you to recognize, but if you're aware of past relationships you've had that maybe have gone poorly, or maybe it's just like the the relationship you have with your mother, which could maybe be volatile, do we find ourselves treating our therapists like that person in some ways. We can't always recognize this, but it's just something to be aware of because sometimes we can. Like sometimes we'll have the same fight that we already had with another person with our therapist or we'll try to. And it doesn't go as planned because our therapist doesn't act out of it. If they did, that would be called countertransference, and that's very unhealthy. Um, that means your therapist needs to get in their own therapy and work on their own shit. But anyways, those are just some of the ways to know if you are overly attached to your therapist. And I have tons of videos about why if you want to get on YouTube and just um, type in Katie Morton attached to therapist, they'll all pop up and you can learn about like why that happens. Um, so that's how we just check in. And so if everything you feel towards your therapist, really, everything you feel should just be I like them, they seem nice, they listen to me, they offer, you know, resources, I look forward to seeing them because it's a great place to vent and talk about things. And they really get me. But that's really it. This this whole like wanting to take the relationship to another level outside of what therapy really is, is that over, it, it's like getting into that kind of overly attached realm, you know, wishing we were friends, wishing we could see them all the time, um, you know, wishing they were our mom maybe, or I don't know, there can be a lot of things like that. So just be aware of that. And if that's happening, it's okay to talk to your therapist about it. I've gotten questions and it might be in here maybe too, but I've gotten a lot of questions over the years about like, well, if I tell my therapist this is happening, are they just going to like get rid of me, like discharge me? And are they are we going to end therapy or going to refer me out? And the answer is no. Attachment is very common in therapy. We deal a lot with it in our training and any therapist worth your time is going to try to talk it out with you, manage it, um, understand your triggers, understand when it's happening, talk you through it and assert the boundaries of the therapeutic relationship and allow you to process what comes up for you when those are asserted. Because I've had patients, everything from cry about it, be mad about it to lash out and like scream at me about boundaries. Um, all of that's okay. We try to hold that environment for you. Obviously, you can't threaten your therapist. Um, I've only had that happen once and it's kind of a scary situation. But you know, then then we worry about our safety. But you can get mad. You can say like, I don't like that. And I feel like you're abandoning me. And it's okay to say those things. I know in our life, it's usually not, but that's what therapy's for is then, okay, it seems like a lot of anger is coming up for you. Like, when did this happen to you before? Like, when have you felt this way? And we can kind of dig into that. And there can be some resistance and some defense mechanisms and things that pop up, but that's part of therapy. That's what makes it so magical is we can talk about those things, process those things, figure out where it's coming from so we can heal those wounds and get us into a place where we don't feel so dependent on other people for our own well-being. Got it? And hopefully that kind of helps you tease it out because it's kind of something that you personally have to recognize because transference is when we're treating our our therapist like someone else that we have a relationship with. And so we have to kind of be aware of that and think about it and maybe, you know, talk to your therapist about it, of course. Okay, moving into question number two says, hey, Katie, I hope you're doing well. I am. Thank you. Says, how does one get over having to switch therapists and process the loss of that relationship and having to start a new one? Thank you for your content. Of course, this is tricky. And I do, do I have a video about how to process? I think I have how to process like how to end therapy. Um, maybe I should have one more specific to this. But I think in the ending therapy, I talk about this a little bit. The process of it is to, I mean, and I don't know if you have the ability to do this, but I'm going to give you all the information then whatever you're able to do, you do. Hopefully, we have an opportunity to know that one relationship with a therapist is ending and the other one is going to begin. And we have some time in between those two things happening to process it. So we want to process the loss with our first therapist, the one that we're leaving before we get to our new one. Got it? And so part of 
any kind of termination that I have with a patient where either they're doing well and we're slowly titrating down, we're always having a conversation about the end of it and processing all the work that they've done, how well they've done things and trying to, you know, assuage any fears or uh, validate any concerns that they have because a lot of people feel very nervous about it and don't want it to end. And that's all, that's all fine. That's totally normal. We want to talk about that. And we also want to acknowledge all the work that we've done together and how much they've come, how much, you know, effort they put in and how far they've come and all that stuff, right? So we kind of want to process that all and then slowly transfer over to another person. In an ideal world, we would be able to have you see both therapists for like a couple of weeks so that you feel the other one is a good fit and you're okay with continuing to see them. And then we let go of the one and are on to the next. Does that make sense? That's ideal. Now, because of financial situations and the way that insurances are and just life, sometimes we can't do that. And so often we have to process in our current therap- therapy about, you know, the end of it and what that means and all the work that we've done together and what we're going to miss and all that and be sad and grieve. And that's okay. And then we start the other one and we hope that it's a good fit. But I'd encourage you to also spend some time, not a ton, but maybe a couple of weeks or maybe, you know, maybe it goes on for honestly a few months, but it's not the whole sessions. It's just a little bit of the conversation is to bring up the fact that you miss your old therapist and that you liked this about them. And these are the things that you are working on. And this is what you're sad about and blah, blah, blah. We can use that new therapy to process the loss of the old one. And I know you're telling you're probably thinking, well, what a fucking waste. I went to therapy to work on things and now I'm here working on a past therapy set. Like, why is therapy giving me more things to work on? It's just loss. Loss is loss, no matter who it comes from or what situation. And losing a therapist is a really interesting and important bond in our life. And it's okay to give yourself time to process that. Yes, it sucks. Yes, it's not easy. I still miss Rebecca, my very first therapist forever. She was wonderful. And not really my first first therapist, but my first therapist that I chose and worked, uh, helped me through the like the loss of my dad and stuff. She was just wonderful and all of that. And oh, and it was hard. And I, I still wish I could see her. If I could, I would, but she's retired. So, you know, we need to give ourselves time to process it. And it's okay to feel sad. It's okay to be upset about it. But that giving yourself an opportunity to process that loss with your new therapist will will surprisingly and sneakily help you build trust and a relationship with your new one so that you can move forward and get get back to work, right? That's really how it is. And that's how it works. I hope you have an opportunity to process it before, but not everybody does. Like I said, I understand we can't, we might already be seeing the other person, but that's how, that's how we go about it. Okay. Question number three says, Hi, Katie, I hope you're doing great. I wanted to ask, am I ever going to make peace with what happened to me as a child and the collateral damages that it has created? I was sexually abused from ages six to eight. And I've been in therapy off on and off since I was 11. A lot of my work in therapy has been about dealing with what happened. But I just feel like I'm I'm the one who has to deal with the rest of the unfair stuff for life. For example, my my abuser is part of my life. So as complicated complicated as it is, I could never get any justice. And that's still something that bothers me because I deal with having to still hear from him and even seeing him. I don't know if this is confusing, but thanks for reading. Yeah. Okay. So are you able, so your abuser is part of your family. And that, so I just want you to know how common that is. And unfortunately, right, there's a lot of dirtbags out there and a lot of them were related to, and I'm sorry for that. I would, I wish, okay, so in a perfect world, here's my advice. And I I know that this might not work for you and that's okay. But I don't think you should see him anymore. And I think this should be a boundary that you set with your family. And I think you should still press charges if you can. I know that it happened so long ago. So the statute of limitations might have run out. I don't know how things work because it says um, they're from Venezuela. So maybe you know, I don't know what the rules are there, but I know in the States, I think that the statute of limitations would have run out, um, depending on how old you are now. But I, I really do not see a play. A, I don't think it's healthy for us to have to deal with, see with, or have any relationship with an, someone who abused us, period. I know people can disagree and be like, well, they apologize and they mean better and all of that. It can be, maybe, okay, maybe. If that's your situation, then more power to you. I would never knock something that works for someone, right? That's not the goal of what I do. However, 
how are we supposed to heal? I'm just asking this because I'm curious, like, how the fuck are you supposed to heal while you still have to see this dirtbag all the time and hear his voice and fucking I just want to punch him in the throat. What a dirtbag. What a son of a bitch. I want to throw him, you know, down a I don't know, down a rocky hill into a river. Um, what a ugh, ugh. so that's going to make healing very difficult for you. Because you have to continue to confront this person, have to continue to see them and not confront in the way of like, you did this to me, how dare you? It's more like you have to engage with this person all the time. That's not good for you. That's not healthy for you. That's not healthy for anyone. It, in order for us to heal from trauma, here's some, I don't know, I think I've talked about this before, but if I haven't, something that we we need in order to feel able to process through a trauma and something that happened to us is we have to be able to feel neutral. I used to say safe, but my friend Alexa Altman, Dr. Alexa Altman, she is a um, a trauma specialist and she was saying how safe, trying to find a safe space or talking about safe spaces to those of us who've been traumatized can in and of itself be very scary and traumatizing because safe means we're vulnerable, which I totally get and I hadn't thought about it. So kudos to her for sharing that with me. But we need to we need to feel not threatened is the key even if it's just neutral, right? But being around this person is constantly placing our, ourselves in a situation or a position where we feel threatened because this person is a threat. They've proven they're a threat. I don't think they've changed. I don't know why we didn't, you know, we weren't able to get justice. And I know it's complicated and all of that. And I get it. And family can be totally fucked up and actually enable bad behavior like this. And I, I just, I get so frustrated when families do that because by protecting the abuser, they're placing all of this like, weight and pain onto the victim and essentially telling the victim that the way that they were treated and what happened to them was okay. And that is such a bad message to tell a child and such a horrifically painful and harmful message to send that, you know, it's just, ugh, I just want to punch them all in the throats. And I understand it's your family and I get it. And I know you probably love them and everything, but, but that's not right. And I can't, I can't pretend that it is. So that's truth is that this is I would assume and you'd have to let me know but I would assume this is slowing your work your trauma work because you still have to see this fucking piece of trash and you shouldn't have to and of course you feel like you're the one that has to deal with the rest of the unfair stuff yeah this is totally fucked up your family should stand with you and I I don't know part of it for me and I don't know if I was your therapist part of what I would have questions for you would be about how engaging with them makes you feel and how your family's response made you feel and how you have tried to deal with it. Like what's come up for you and how has this slowed your work and like, what can we do to make it better? And would, would we be able to maybe try to place a boundary with our family where it's like, I'm not going to be there if he's there. It's, it's making it impossible for me to move on. So if you want him there, then I'm not there. You know, I'd love to see you guys. I'd love to be there, but I can't because, you know, this fucking dirt bag is there. And I know that that can be difficult. People are like, well, why should I have to be the one to choose? You shouldn't have to be the one to choose. Your family should have fucking chose you because this guy's a fucking dirt bag. And I want to like chop his nuts off and shove him down his throat. Such a piece of garbage. So, you know, I think pushing back or figuring out what's best for you. This is me speaking my mind and telling you, you know, what I think. But I, I, I just... It's so difficult when families do this, when they protect the abuser, and I find it to be so detrimental to the recovery of my patients, and it can be so hard for us to overcome because, again, like the message we received was what happened to us wasn't important. And so anyways, I think that that healing from that and finding a way to place healthy boundaries for yourself could be the move that helps push you forward because, of course, I mean, You've been in therapy off and on since you're 11. So you're like, when the fuck does this stop? Like, I'm still trying to deal with this and it's unfair. And yeah, it, it sucks. And to have to continue to be reminded of it and be around that person is is horrible. And so part of me thinks that, that we're going to have to do some work on that for whatever it is for you. It could just be, you know, you're not there when he's there or you maybe you move away. You don't have to. I'm just, you know, I don't know what that looks like for you. Maybe it's you only interact with them on your own terms for a certain amount of time. I don't know. Maybe it's just communicating to your family how hurt you were about well, how they handled that and how how like damaging this has been to you because 
that's the thing that bothers me the most about it is that when families do this, it's like they don't want their loved one to go to prison, even though they've done something that deserves a prison sentence. And I understand that, but it's like by doing that, it's like because they can't see, because they would see that happen, right? You would see someone go to prison and they would not be in your life for however many years or whatever. But it's like they can't see the mental toll that takes on someone. And so that that's easier to ignore. And sometimes bringing that into their awareness and kind of forcing them because that's your life right now you're stuck dealing with it. And I think it's only fair that they at least recognize what the mental toll is and that this is something you deal with. If we bring that to their awareness, sometimes not all the time, but sometimes they'll come around and realize the fault in their ways and make some changes. Again, we can't control people. We can't make them do that, but we can control who we interact with, how long we spend, what we do, where we're at, who we see, who we don't see, who will allow to contact us and all that. And those are the ways that I would encourage you to like, you know, harness your power and do it in a way that feels good for you. And I'm sorry. I, I'm so sorry that this, this happened and that that's how your family reacted. Okay, moving on to question number four says, Hi, Katie, how do you get through social anxiety during therapy sessions? Ooh, good question. When therapy triggers it much more than any experience ever has. Yeah, I can do that. Anxiety leading up to sessions, dissociation during sessions, and constantly needing to distract my mind with two things at once after sessions as it makes me panic to think about what was discussed in session. It feels traumatic to think back to the sessions even months later. I spoke to my therapist and she just said it was normal to be um, and to be expected and that it would get better, but I wasn't told how to cope. Thank you for all that you do. Yeah, to be honest, it is very common just to mimic, like to mirror back what your therapist said. She's correct. It is very, very common, but you're going to need, we need to find some ways to calm our nervous system down. And I know I've talked a lot about like the shaking it out. I talked about that in last week's episode like shaking out all the stress that we feel, I would encourage you to take some time to do that. And I know that sounds really weird, but maybe right before your session, you do like a full body shakeout. If you can, maybe right before you get in your car at home, or if there's a safe place, like if it's in a not busy parking lot and you can park your car in it and feel like you have a little privacy to shake, shake and get that extra anxious energy that's roaming around in your system, get it out. But we're going to have to find some soothing things. So that could be Having a fidget toy could be journaling about it ahead of time. It could be thought stopping. A lot of times anxiety just builds and grows and thrives on worry thoughts and anxious ruminating thoughts that just spin out of control. And so we can have these thoughts over and over and over and over and over and they just get louder and louder and louder until we feel completely overwhelmed. And so I would just encourage you to recognize that you're doing that and stop those thoughts and either, you know, say stop, stop, stop in your head and force your brain into like a happy memory, or distract by doing something else. Like, is it that we sing along to the music in the car? Or is it that we listen to a podcast that forces us to focus? Is it what is it that we do? Um, But we have to find some ways to stop that build up, because it is building up. And I'm assuming you know, it's probably like the morning of your session, or maybe even the night before when you remember that you have a session, we've it starts to like we're on a roller coaster, you know, and it's going uphill, like before the big drop, you're feeling it build. And so I want you to recognize that first tick on that and be like, no, 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 I'm not going to engage in this. I'm going to color or I'm going to journal or you know what? I'm going to tell myself more balanced thoughts about therapy. So if we can stop those negative ones, then it can be helpful for us to go into, you know, therapy is actually a pretty safe place. Never before have I had a place where I can talk to someone privately and get insight on things or never before could I talk to someone and receive their perspective without judgment or without them already knowing about other things, right? So we tell friends or family, they already know and they have their own preconceived notion about what is happening, what's going on. And we, you know, I don't know, it, it's therapy is a special thing. So maybe consider that, uh, come up with some more balanced thoughts like that to talk yourself down from it, because it's this interaction with your therapist. And the more times, unfortunately, the more times we have a an unhealthy and dissociative episode during therapy, the more our brain has proved to itself that therapy is not safe. And so my final tip on this is to do some exposure therapy on yourself. Meaning I want you to, on a day when you don't have therapy, I want you to say, what if I had therapy today? Let's imagine I'm going to get in my car. I'm going to go to therapy. I want you to start rolling yourself through it and using those tools, those calming tools in between. So, okay. So maybe the first time I can only get into my car and 
in my mind, right, pretending, get into my car and pull out of the driveway. And then I have to pull back in. And then I need to calm myself down. Like, how bad does your anxiety get? We want to use our tools and we're like at a four or five, 10 being like dissociation, zero being I'm asleep. So I only want you to let it get up to like a four or five, maybe a six if we, you know, didn't catch it quite soon enough. Then we use our tools, we come back down to like a two. Then we try it again. And we, you know, and we just do this exposure over and over. I have a video all about exposure therapy because we need to prove to your mind that your brain, that therapy is not scary, that it's not and something we need to be worried about. And that's the best way to do it little by little. And yes, it's normal and it will get better, but it won't get better if we keep having these bad experiences. And so I want you to uh, do some of that. Those and those resources will be key. Um, but proving to yourself that it's not as scary will be great and healing and it will get better. Okay. Moving on to question number five it says, Hey, Katie, what impact does having a surgery as a baby have on the on our emotional development? I was wondering if my fear of abandonment is connected with a surgery I had at six months old. I recently found out that it was also connected to staying at the hospital for a month, partly without having my parents there. I imagine this is a traumatic event for a child that age that age, especially since I read it's around the time the object constant, um, constancy develops. Yes. So a surgery on children is very tough and very bad on our attachment. It's not to say we shouldn't have the surgeries because they're usually life saving surgeries, right? And things that have to be done immediately. Um, my brother actually had situations like this. I don't know because because I don't talk to my brother in this way, but I don't know if like if he has a fear of abandonment or if I don't know, he hasn't talked about that stuff. And he was not keen on therapy. So I really don't know. Um, so anyway, I, uh, I do know that this can affect us terribly. Because like you said, your parents weren't there. And you had to be in the hospital for a month. That's a really long time. And the, the part if you guys don't know, it's in the first year of our life where we form uh, attachment. And I have videos if you want to just YouTube, Katie Morton attachment, all of them will come up. Um, but I, I, and I talk about like the four attachment styles and all that. But in that first year, that attachment forms an attachment, healthy attachment, or what we call secure attachment forms when we know that if we cry, someone comes to our aid and assists us in the way that we need. Meaning if I'm crying because I, I, let's say, um, I bonked my head or something, or I scratched myself because little kids can like, especially when we're babies, we can just like hurt ourselves by trying to navigate our world because, you know, our sight is still developing at distance and we're still trying to figure out, oh my God, we have hands and, you know, we're holding, trying to hold our head up and stuff like this and we can bonk and we can get hurt. We can be hungry. We can need to be changed. We can be tired. All reasons why we can cry. We could be a colicky baby and we need more soothing because we don't know how to regulate our system and soothe ourselves. There's a lot of things. So having someone show up for us when we cry, uh, one, and usually when we're that little, it's like one person that we we connect with. As we get older, you can, uh, I forget the breakdown, but I want to say it's like the first year is just one. And then then we can bring in another, like a, you know, a mom or dad, if depending on who was the primary caregiver, if we have two people, you know, the other spouse or other partner can be somebody else that we then attach to. And then, then as we get, I think it's like five and six, then we can add more people like grandparents and other things to safe people in our caregiver safety attachment little bubble. So that first year, it's really important that we have one person we can count on. But if we're in the hospital and it's constantly changing and sometimes we cry and it takes a minute for them to get there and it's not it's not ideal. And I believe that if it's not done properly, we don't get that skin on skin contact. Have you ever seen when people have babies, uh, they usually like will pull their shirts down to reveal their chest or unbutton. And like men will usually do it because, you know, they don't have boobs like ladies. So there's like always wearing bras and wanting to bare their chest, you know, but whatever you want to do, you do you. But they lay the baby right on your skin. And it's that skin on skin contact is really soothing to the children. Um, and it's part of kind of that connection and them getting smelling your scent. And it, it's it's just it, it helps them calm. So if we're in a hospital, if we're having surgeries, and we're stuck there for a month, and we don't get that skin on skin contact, and we, you know, are handled, obviously, they're taking care of us, but we're not handled in a, as much of a loving um way with the same person feeding us and caring and singing to us like nurses do the best they can and I'm not saying nurses in the NICU like don't 
you know, don't help or don't do that stuff. But I'm just saying that like, they, they do the best they can, but it's not our primary caregiver and it's not our mother. And we don't hear that voice that we knew in, in utero and it's, it's complicated. And so I do believe that it can have an impact on our attachment. Emotional development, maybe not so much. I'd have to read more research on it. I don't know of anything to prove that it, it, it can, it's that attachment stuff because we can be more anxious avoidant, meaning that we're like, I kind of like you and I kind of want, but it's not safe. So it's kind of that, like I've talked about it when it comes to like borderline personality disorder, uh, where we can feel like we want to be with people. And then as soon as we feel attached, we're like, oh, I I don't want to be attached because if I'm attached to you and you hurt me, I can't deal with that. So then I'm going to run away and shut down or push you out, push you away. I can't deal, right? I want you. I don't want you. I want you. I don't want you. We can do that a lot. And it, it causes a lot of discomfort either way. And so yes, that and I that could you could like put that into an emotional development thing, but it's really based in attachment. And so yeah, it is traumatic for a child and I think that um yeah, and the object if you guys don't know what object object constancy is, it's like knowing it's like that same person having that one person come back and knowing that they're like coming back and you you we don't rec we recognize them enough. We recognize like their voice and sometimes their smell and stuff like that. Because again, like our eyesight, as we develop, we get like, we're able to see farther and recognize faces and stuff. Um, and so it's in that time that we do that. And if it's not the same person, and you know, if, especially if we're in the hospital, a lot of times they have masks on. And now that's what I worry about too, is like, it's, it's hard, especially for my people on the um, autism spectrum, it's like hard for us to read facial expressions, but it's also hard for babies to connect and to see like, cause babies mimic our, you know, Ooh, we smile, big eyes, we look them in the eye and they need that. And that's part of that, as part of that emotional development and that growth and stuff like that. So yes. Th- those are my thoughts. I, d- I just want to talk it out so you kind of understand where I'm coming from. And yes, I think that that could have had an effect on you and something that it's not as easy to try to like process that trauma because it was before you form long-term memory. But that doesn't mean that we can't recognize the symptoms that we have as a result of it and work on those and better understand our attachment and how we feel and how we can express that to people and how we can soothe our system when we feel like someone might leave us or it might be overwhelming or anything like that. Sorry, I got an itch here fix my fix my noisy headphones. Um, so anyway, yeah, so that those are my thoughts. Okay, let's move into um, question number six. Is that right? Yes. Okay. Question number six says, Hi, Katie, I have a very hard time coping with change. I seem to be seeking comfort and stability all the time. And the slightest change in my life brings me a lot of fear and anxiety, sometimes to the point that I have to cancel everything I was about to do to go back to my comfort zone. Hmm. How do we know when, when fear is there to protect us? And so we shouldn't do the thing or when fear is useless. And so we should do the thing. Do you think this fear of change could come from insecure attachment? It could, it could also be, there's a lot of things. I feel it might uh, be because I always need a lot to feel safe. How do we address that in therapy? I have no idea how to work on insecure attachment or this fear of change with my therapist. Thank you so much for everything. Of course. So, okay. There's a lot of reasons we can struggle with change. Number one, is, um, I don't know, maybe an attachment, attachment would not have been my gut. If you hadn't put that in there, I wouldn't, it wouldn't even have popped in my brain. I come, there's a couple anxiety disorder, um, autism spectrum disorder. I don't know if anybody recognizes this, but those of us on, and they call it a spectrum because everybody's affected differently, right? Some of us have, you know, certain set of symptoms, others have more severe, more impairing symptoms, but people exist all along the spectrum. And so I find when people are on the spectrum, if you don't know, some of us can struggle with a, it's regulating our system. There was this, I forget this article, what it was called, but I read it a long time ago. It was written by a woman who has ASD and she was talking about how, you know, she's comparing it to a radio and how when you have a radio plugged in and you tune, I mean, this might be a little old for some people, but you tune into a radio station and it comes in and then it's clear, right? And we hear the song, we hear the DJ, yay, we have the radio station. She said having ASD is like the wires are frayed. And it's like, it's the noises. And then sometimes it comes in and sometimes it doesn't. 
And it's very overwhelming to our system. And so we can be hypersensitive to changes to our environment, loud noises, uh, certain kind of textures, taste, smells, uh, anything in our, our five senses. It becomes it can become overwhelming. We can be uh, we can have like part of part of ASD for some people is like sensory processing disorder and some of the symptoms of that. And that's kind of what I'm describing. And so you could have some of that. Coping with change can be hard. You can feel really overwhelmed with any change, especially if it's done without your knowledge ahead of time. You don't get to prepare. That's very, very common. A lot of uh, parents who have children with ASD try to do like it's very scheduled and very ritualed and you have to warn them ahead of time and give them a minute to adjust and then you do the thing. So it's like we can't just say like, oh, crap, I forgot. We got to go pick up your brother. Get get, get in the car. Okay, we got to go. They're like, no, I'm in the middle of playing with my trains. You can't do that to me. Like, it's really hard for us to regulate. And so that's something I think of. And then the anxiety disorders. And that would really be it. It could also be kind of OCD based people with obsessive compulsive. Again, it's, it's under that anxiety disorder umbrella. But I'm just throwing out some of my thoughts and ideas. Now, insecure attachment would have more to do with feeling like you're going to be left. And I don't know if that's what comes up for you, but attachment is more about abandonment or feeling uh, like we can't trust people. It's more about people and so relationships. And and if that's not coming up for you, then I don't think that, that has anything to do with it. My guess would be that it's it's anxiety driven, you know, or or like the things I said, I don't know if you've been assessed for ASD or if, if I, if, you know, I have videos about that and how it you know, if you, I have one about um, how autism in females looks different. Some people love it. Some people hate it. We know through research that there is a difference in a lot of cases. Every, obviously, not everybody falls into those buckets, but it's kind of helpful sometimes to know how it can we can experience it and it can be really validating to someone. So I, I stand by it. Um, but anyway, I have some videos about that if you want to. And there's also other creators on the platform who talk about um, the autism spectrum disorders in a lot more, you know, they have it personally and they share their personal stories so they can share more experience. And I think that that's also beneficial. So if you want to look for that stuff, I completely support that. But when it comes to this, the fear and anxiety, that's why I think it's kind of more of an anxiety disorder, possibly. Um, But the fact that you, okay, so how do we know when fear is there to protect us? Fear is there to protect us when we actually have a viable supported in fact threat. And I want you to think about that. A viable, supported, in fact, threat. So what anxiety does, or even OCD for that matter, tells us that there's this risk and it makes up, it fabricates and makes assumptions to cause us to believe that if we don't do this thing, something bad is going to happen. Like if I don't do this this certain number of times, or if I don't, you know, get back out of the car and check the stove, our house is going to burn down. And it's this obsessive need to check even though we, it's a lot of checking. A lot of people think of it as organization or cleanliness or something, and that's not always the case. Some cases it is, but not always. Um, but the amount that we have to do in order to help ourselves feel safe is debilitating, and it can take up hours and hours of our day. So my my guess is that you have some of those thoughts, like maybe in the OCD type realm, where your anxiety runs out of control, and they actually have no facts to support this. Like, for instance, I have had patients with OCD, let's go back to that, like, stove top thought, where like, oh, I what if I didn't, I need to check the stove. If we check the facts, and we said, well, let's be honest, we were in there this morning, I didn't smell any gas, I didn't see any flames, and I haven't cooked on the stove in a day or, you know, since yesterday morning or something. So the chances that I left the stove on are actually pretty low. And the chances that me being gone to the grocery store for this amount of time is going to cause the whole house to blow up or whatever it's telling you. Now, I know that might not be the best example, but it's things like that where we have to check our facts. Like if you um, have something change, right? So they change what you're supposed to do. And all of a sudden you're like, well, I was supposed to drive. How come you're coming to get me? I don't want to get in the car with you. We start to fear, what if I get in an accident? It's because they came to get me and I got in this car. That to me sounds, yeah, it sounds very much like anxiety disorder driven. And so anyway, I'm just thinking it out with you. I'm processing with you. But all those things to me scream anxiety and maybe autism spectrum or OCD. And the best way to address this in therapy is to recognize 
because I would believe that your fear, this overarching fear that you have is is debilitating and it's um, impairing your ability to function. So you can't do the things you need to do every day because your fear, you have to cancel everything and just not do anything because it's too scary. And so that's affecting your life in a bad way. And therefore, that's how we know fear, like, again, the fear to protect, if fear is there to protect us, because we have a viable threat with facts to support it. And fear is useless is when it's impairing our ability to function, we have no facts to support it. And it can come out of nowhere. And it, it ruins things, right? It makes it impossible for us to do what we need to do every day. And I think that a lot of your fear is probably completely useless. Um, and I'm only using that word because you used it. Not, I'm just saying that your fear is not warranted. That's how I would say it. And so you should do the thing. And part of this is going to be kind of back to what I'd answered the question before. Uh, I think it was like two questions back, but it's like finding ways to soothe your system, checking your facts or playing things out. Um, you might want to, depending on what we think is causing this, you might want to see a specialist in this case, like whether it's someone who specializes in OCD, ASD, or anxiety disorders, that could be really helpful, but it's going to be exposure therapy. And we're going to have to find ways to kind of soothe your system because the thing about any of these, like, although ASD is like, I'm going to remove it from this equation right now because it doesn't really pertain to the treatment for that. But when it comes to anxiety disorders and OCD and things like that, is that doing the action, like actually allowing our fear to, to, push us to stop doing stuff reinforces it and reinforces that thought process. And so in order to stop it, we have to have that worry thought that, oh my God, my house is going to burn down and we have to fight back and not go back in and check that stove and prove to ourselves it's going to be okay. And so that's kind of the exposure part of it where we have to, even though we feel the discomfort, we have to not engage with the thing. And that's going to be really difficult, but that's how you work on it in therapy. And so part of it's like putting together that hierarchy of fears hierarchy of uh, worries and things that you have, you think about and you know, all of that from zero being super easy to do not really that big of a stress 10 being like, Oh, my God, this will send me into a panic, and I have to not do anything at all. Um, you know, come up with that with your therapist, and then slowly find ways to expose yourself to it. And I have a video about exposure therapy, if you want to watch more and learn more. But that's the best way to address this. Um, and just the thing that's really great to remember is that if we are doing exposure therapy, the chances that you have to redo it or um, that it's going to come back and you're going to have to, it's going to be intensive and take forever. It doesn't actually. The chances of us having to go back and do exposure therapy again is very low. We may have to do a couple booster sessions, but once we've been able to master it and do it and we're able to do the thing a few times, you're good. So I think that is really cool and really motivating. So hang in there. It does get better. Okay, question number seven says, Hi, Katie, you've mentioned in the past about listing what you had in a relationship versus what you needed from that relationship and grieving the difference. I never quite understood what that meant. What does grieving the difference look like exactly? Thanks for all you do. It's a great question. And sorry, I never talked about it sooner. But I have talked about that a lot. And part of it is, you know, like, okay, what can the person give me? What is it I wish they could give me? Actually, it's usually first. Like, what do I wish in a perfect world? What could my relationship with my mom be or my sister or my friend? What could it be? What do I wish? I wish they were supportive. I wish they could say sorry. I wish they'd show up for me, whatever it is. I wish they weren't abusive. I wish they didn't drink. Depends on the thing, right? So I wish it could be like this. But here, over here on the other side is what they're able to give. And that might only be one thing on that list, right? Let's say we have a very different, maybe we have an, a, a parent who's an alcoholic. So they can't really show up for us in the way we want. They're not consistent because alcoholism doesn't allow for that. They only think about themselves because that's what alcoholism does. We're always trying to figure out how to get that next drink or whatever. Um, and so, you know, I, I can't really count on them emotionally for support either. But what I can count on is that I know I can call them in the mornings on one Wednesday, and I can have a pretty decent conversation for about 10, 15, 20 minutes. So that's where I can keep them. And I know that that sounds depressing. And that's where the grief comes in. So we had all these things that we wish this relationship could be, let's say, like, in that case, like, I'd wish that I could spend, you know, weeks at a time visiting my family, and it would be great. And they'd be supportive and loving. And I could tell them about all the things I'm working on, and the things I'm excited about, and the things I'm scared of. And I would I want to have that closeness. I want to have that family that people talk about, you know, uh, spoilers, most of us don't have that family. So don't feel bad, you know, As, I mean, you can feel bad, but I'm just saying, you're not alone. So that that acknowledgement of the things they cannot give us is going to bring up a lot 
for us if we're able to tap into our feelings and actually feel our feelings, which a lot of us are not. But I would encourage you to get to know those feelings. Those feelings are usually things like disappointment, sadness, anger, frustration. I don't know, could be irritability, could be a lot of things that we feel could be defeated. You know, I don't know what you'd feel. I don't want to tell you what you feel, but I'm just giving you some ideas and allowing ourselves to feel those feelings and be sad about the things like for uh, we think of grief, right? When people pass away and when my dad died, the biggest thing was I was like, oh my God, he's not gonna be able to walk me down the aisle at my wedding. And I was like devastated. And I was like, he's not even gonna see me graduate, you know, uh, from grad school. I think I still had a year left when my dad passed away. Yeah. So, you know, you think about those things and you can be really sad about it. And that's the grief. So what are the things that we wish that we could have them around for and have them do for us that they can't do? And can we be sad about that? Can we acknowledge that it sucks and that we wish that they would do that and we wish they'd show up for us in that way? That's what I mean by it. So allowing yourself an opportunity to feel shitty about the fact that that they can't because they're not able, that's the grief. And I think a lot of times, and I've talked about this more recently because things in 2020 are uncomfortable, but I think when we feel uncomfortable feelings, we tend to want to numb out. We tend to want to ignore or uh, run away from them, stuff them down, but then that doesn't allow us to grieve. And so it's allowing us to feel those uncomfortable feelings and know that they'll pass. Everybody's always afraid that, oh, if I allow myself to feel it, I'll just come unraveled and it'll never go away. That's not how it works. We, we can only cry for so long. We can only think about that one thing for so long. If we keep it focused and we keep it on this situation, this relationship, yeah, maybe, okay, maybe we'll be sad for a couple of days. But then it's like you get exhausted. You can only cry so much. Like babies cry it out for a reason, right? You can cry and fall asleep. So just know that it won't go on forever. It's okay to let yourself feel it. It's not going to ruin your life. It's actually going to make you feel better. And in a way, you're kind of like validating your own thoughts and experience and feelings about this. So that's hopefully that clears it up. But let me know if not. I'm happy to answer this again. It's a great question. Excuse me. I had to boop. Okay. Question number eight says, hi, Katie. How can you start dating when you struggle with fear of intimacy, especially regarding romantic relationships and sex? and tend to use avoidance as a coping mechanism. I tend to find myself shying away from any situation that includes flirting or physical contact. So what are small steps that I can take to get over this fear? Thanks for all you do. Happy holidays from Switzerland. Oh, happy holidays back. Um, okay. So I guess the, the part of it would be for me is I would, I want to be, I'd be curious and want you to be, to think about where this fear of intimacy comes from. Is it from a trauma? Is it from a lack of self-confidence? Is it all these things? I don't know. I, I want you to kind of be curious about where it comes from. Is it social anxiety driven? Because whatever the reason or whatever the root of this or the cause of this symptom is, we want to figure out what that is because that's where the work needs to be done. Sure, we can try to find ways to soothe our system allow us to like smile at a stranger might be a small step that we make or make eye contact with someone that we don't know. Those are all things that we can kind of build up into getting more comfortable with not even just intimacy, but just engaging with other people in, I guess you could call it intimacy. It's like building up towards more intimacy and physical intimacy. Um, and I actually have a video about fear of intimacy. If you want to just look that up on YouTube, I have that too. But those are some of the small steps, but we really have to figure out where it's coming from so that we can work on that because otherwise we're just treating the symptoms. It's like if I had, you know, pneumonia and I have a cough and my doctor just gives me some cough syrup, but it doesn't actually fix the fact that I have a, an infection in my lung. I think that's what uh, that is, but no, maybe pneumonia is not, but either way, fluid in my lungs, I think it is. Um, if they don't actually fix that, I'm still going to feel sick and it's not going to go away. And so we don't want to just treat this fear of intimacy as if it's a standalone thing, because at my, at my hypothesis is that it's not. I would assume that it comes out of something else, like whether we've had someone take advantage of us in the past, whether it's a bad toxic relationship or whether it was abuse as a kid or something like that, or is it a social anxiety driven? Could be that. Um, or you know, is it just lack of self-confidence, which I believe is the root of all anxiety? And should we work on that first? I had a video that came out a couple of weeks ago on my main channel about, you know, feeling better about yourself and building that confidence. You should check that, that out. It's, it could be really helpful. Um, but those are all kind of things that I would want you to do. Because if we don't 
understand where it's coming from and work on that, it's still going to come back. And sure, we can push through and oh, I'm going to flirt anyway, and ugh, but I don't want you white knuckling it because intimacy is a, is a really beautiful thing, sexual or non-sexual, like just intimacy with humans and other people in our lives is very important. And it's part of that connectivity that is actually very soothing to our system and, and very calming and something that we all actually need. And so I want you to be able to lean into that in a healthy way that feels good for you so that you know you can have a relationship where you have a a, a person you can connect with on that level and feel like really safe and calm in their hug or in their embrace, not on edge. This is so uncomfortable. Just just relax. Just do it. We're doing it. I don't want you to do that because that's in a way that's only like making it worse or invalidating how you feel and just like pushing it any pushing you through it anyway. Um, so yeah, figure that out. And then let's work on that. And I have videos about all those things, you know, if you want to dig deeper into it. Okay. Question number nine says, hi, Katie, happy Thursday. Happy Thursday. Says, how can I stop blaming my past selves? I always feel like I had so much potential as a 17 year old. And I feel so angry with her for not fulfilling that. Despite being aware of how much abuse she had sustained and how lonely and powerless she felt at the time. Can we just pause for a minute and just under just, just acknowledge what you just said. So you, you blame your past self. You had so much potential as a 17 year old despite being aware. So then this is really important. How much abuse you had sustained and how lonely and powerless you felt at the time. I don't want to say she, I want to say you, you went through all of this stuff. We need to acknowledge that. Okay. I'm just saying, because then you're also blaming yourself, but you, you weathered a big storm. Okay. Moving on. I just feel like a lot of the mistakes later in my life could have been prevented if only she was stronger and could make better choices. Wow. So much judgment. How can I stop blaming her and move on from this? Thank you. We're caught in a shame spiral. That's what's happening. Uh, we're blaming ourselves for all the things that happened to us, even though we had no control over it. So there's a couple of things I would encourage you to do. Because we know, I don't know if you love Brené Brown as much as I do, but she talks a lot about shame and vulnerability. Because the essentially, the only way to shut down shame is through vulnerability and courage. And so it's like, if we are vulnerable, and we share our true authentic self, we be courageous, and we talk about it, and we do it, then then shame doesn't have a place to live, because shame only thrives on guilt, embarrassment, and I guess secrecy, you could throw that in there kind of too. But it's all those things, right? Because shame, if you don't know, is the belief that something is wrong with us. It's not like I did something wrong, enter guilt, or I did something I wish I didn't, enter embarrassment. It's something inside me is intrinsically wrong. I'm broken in some way. Like I hear from a lot of my patients who have uh, trauma in their past, especially complex trauma, where they're like, I did something to perpetuate this. I'm the reason. What is it about me that people think, you know, makes them want to continue to traumatize me? It must be something I did. We start to think that we have done something to cause it. And it sounds like that's what's happening here because you're blaming 17-year-old you who was like, just surviving because she had all this abuse and felt powerless and probably shame-filled and all the symptoms that come along with that. And you're assuming that it was because of what you did back then, that you weren't stronger, that you couldn't make better choices. You were just doing the best you could. And so part of the healing is going to be, uh, maybe I don't know, maybe. So these are my hypotheses about it and some things I'd want you to maybe try is I'd like you to write a letter from 17-year-old you to you now. I don't know if you'd be able to write away. It might be easier for you to write a letter from you now to 17-year-old you. You can blame her. You can shame her. You can say whatever you want. Put it down. Put it down on paper or type it up, whatever's easiest, I guess. But write that letter. And then I want you to get in the head of you at that age. If you can go back there, I want you to really go back there and imagine you being that girl at 17. I want you to respond to all that shame, all that hate, all that judgment, all that blame. How do you feel? What do you have to say back to that? We need to start this conversation because you're looking back at this 17 year old you blaming her for all the problems that actually occurred because of the mental illnesses and mental health issues that you're struggling with because of the abuse and all the stuff that happened to you. And you're not acknowledging that in a real way. You say I'm aware of it. Awareness is not acknowledgement. You need to acknowledge it and understand that that happened. My guess is that it's hard for you to admit that that happened in a real way. Like that really happened. 
And this is how it felt at that time. Because often when we're older, we forget how powerless we felt when we were younger when stuff happened, especially if we were like a little kid. Sometimes even just seeing pictures of ourselves at that age or seeing pictures of someone else at that age, we can be like, wow, I forgot how little eight years old is. I would keep looking at it as like, it's me and it's me now. And why didn't I do more, right? I'm going to tell you as a 37-year-old woman, a 17-year-old looks like a child, like a little child. That's how I knew I was getting older. It was actually, I went back to Pepperdine for something. I had a meeting with one of my old professors or something. I don't even know. It could have been music. I'm not sure what it was, but I went back and the kids on campus, and I'm saying kids on purpose. I know they're adults. They're 18 and over. <clears throat> they looked so young. And I remember thinking at this point, I was like 25. And I was like, holy shit. They're so, like babies. Jesus Christ. And I felt old then. So it can help. And I only say that story because it can help for us to see 17-year-old us, see a picture and be like, wow, I was such a baby, right? It, we often lose sight of it and we think, but I knew better because I could look back at like 20-year-old me and be like, God, Katie, you're such an idiot. Why didn't you do things better? And blah, blah. Because I was fucking 20 years old. That's 17 years ago. Holy shit, right? Sometimes we just lose perspective. And so that can help. And writing those letters will really help. And I think sharing those when you feel safe in therapy to share in those letters and that conversation and the shame can, you know, because we, we have to like shed light in the the dark so that the shame can't exist. And so sharing that part of ourselves, sharing the vulnerability of how terrified we felt and what we were going through and allowing ourselves to feel it and stop blaming. I, I mean, I feel like it's all part of this puzzle. And so I, those letters will really help. And, and getting in that mindset of 17 year old, you seeing a picture of you at that time, if you have one, um, it could be really healing. Also, you still got potential. It reminds me of that commercial. Sorry, I wanted to giggle because that commercial of Pinocchio it was like a Geico commercial where Pinocchio was like, you've got potential. His nose is growing. It's like he'd make a horrible uh, motivational speaker. It's so silly. Um, but you still have potential. You still have time. We often think that, oh, life is over because I made all these poor decisions. No, it's only over because we say it's over. It's only bad and unfixable because we say that. We can still take action. There's nothing to say that we can't turn our life around and start back to school at 40. I don't understand why we have this belief in our society and this reinforcement of this time frame around. I got to go to school at this. I need to know what career I want to take. I have to find someone to marry by this age. I need to get married. I have to have kids. I should be doing this. I should own a home. What? Who says? Why? what? I don't know why we just accept those things as like, this is how it's supposed to happen. Everybody's life is fucking different. And I'm sick of that kind of pressure that people can feel because it only leads us to feeling more shame, more guilt, more embarrassment. Um, and it's okay to not have it all figured out. And you still have potential. No, no nose growing on that one. That's all truth. Okay. Question number 10 says, hi, Katie, thank you for the all for all the content you're posting. Of course, you're very welcome. My question is, how do you know if you need therapy or if you can cope on your own? Oh, itch nose. If I compare myself to my past self, I think I'm doing quite well. Yay. I'm able to study more regularly than ever before. And I'm often able to soothe myself with meditation. Amazing. But my dermatillomania, if you don't know what dermatillomania is, it's a uh, skin picking is still present though. It's it's an anxiety disorder. Um, though it's mild or moderate, I have bursts of anxiety issues in some relationships and a screen addiction. I'm currently in therapy with a new therapist because I feel or I felt like as someone who wants to become one herself, I need to address all my issues first. Yes, I applaud you. But I sometimes feel like maybe I don't need it because there are weeks when I'm managing things quite well. Plus, I've already fought and reflected on myself so much on my own before so is there really more to discover? I'm wondering if I'm experiencing resistance. Greetings from France. So this is a great question. And I think we don't all need therapy all the time. But if the reason that we would need therapy is if we still feel like we have bouts where things are unmanageable. And that doesn't mean that we need therapy every week all the time. We might need therapy every other week or once a month. I find it to be anything less, to, in my opinion, anything less than every other week is just not sufficient. I know different 
countries have different things and you don't always get to see someone at least uh, twice a month. But that's where I stand and that those are my beliefs about it. And so when it comes to this, I guess it's if you feel like you need the push and the support and the perspective from a therapist and you're still benefiting from that, then therapy is still helpful for you. But if you feel like you have all your tools, you know what to do, you know how to manage your anxiety, then you might not need it for a while. And it's okay to take a break, see how you do, and then try to come back. I don't know if you've ever done that, but I I think too often we have these beliefs that like we have to be in therapy or out of therapy and we can't just like pop back and forth. Again, I know different systems of care don't allow for that, but that, that that's my goal. And so part of it, I think, could be just taking a break and seeing how you do because sometimes that is the answer. I've had patients like even viewers tell me, I don't know if I really need all my medication. And I'm like, well, talk to your psychiatrist, first of all, never go off medication without talking to your doctor. But I'm like, well, talk to them and see if they'll let you lower your doses of things. More often than not, they'll lower the doses and all the symptoms will come back and they'll be like, I guess I did need it. But sometimes we just need that reminder that I did need it. And maybe we didn't, right? So if you don't, if you go down on like your amount of therapy or take maybe a break, like, hey, can we take a month off? Let's see how we do. It's okay to do that. It's not all or nothing in or out of therapy. It's just what do we need? And how can we get those needs met? And so consider taking a break. Your dermatillomania is still there. So I'm have, I have concerns about your anxiety. And I wonder if you've gotten to like the root of your anxiety and like working on self-confidence and managing those thoughts, or maybe it's medication that we need to get on board. I don't know. You'd have to talk to your doctor, but because you're still having those anxiety issues uh, and the bursts of anxiety, I, I think there's still stuff that needs to be worked on, but does that mean it has to be worked on in therapy? Not necessarily right now. I encourage you just to take a break and see how it works. So I think, but just having weeks, as I'm reading through this question, I'm kind of like second guessing myself because it says, sometimes I feel like maybe I don't need it because there are weeks when I'm managing things quite well. Well, sure, there might be weeks, but I like, I like my patients to have like a full like couple of months of like feeling good, no symptoms um, before we would consider titrating down on sessions and then, you know, working out to termination of therapy. So I really feel like maybe therapy is still beneficial to you, but it's it's always your choice and you can take breaks and come back. There's no right or wrong. It's This is a very gray, it's okay to be curious kind of area. But I think if you're still struggling, therapy is still something that you would utilize and could be helpful. But there's also a lot of work we can do on our own. And I, I would be curious, you know, because I, I think anxiety is always, it, it's born out of a lack of self-confidence. So I'd want you to do some work on that and see if that remedies what's going on. And also there's medication, like I said, but those are just my thoughts. You get to do what you need, you think is best for you. There's no pressure to do it at a certain way or certain time or whatever, but you can take breaks and come back. And maybe that's what we need to do just to either prove to ourselves we don't need it or that we do need it or whatever. And then we can just take it from there. Final question. Question number 11. How important is it to have a clearly formulated goal that you want to work on before your first appointment with your therapist? Great question. I'm afraid I wouldn't be able to say anything beyond a vague, I'd like to not hate waking up in the morning. Great question. And the truth is, you don't have to have any goals at all. You can have that vague, I'd like to not hate waking up in the morning. And that is a wonderful place to start. I think so often we feel like we need to figure all this shit out before we go into therapy, but that's actually what therapy is for to help us figure all that stuff out because we can so often be caught in our own head thinking all, getting these swirling thoughts and it's just overwhelming and it's too much and we don't even know how to make sense of it. And so we can come into therapy and kind of dump all of that and be like, here's the disaster that I'm working with. What do you think? And then we can get some perspective. So you don't have to have any plans. A therapist will ask questions to try to guide towards a plan, towards goals that you can work on together. Uh, Like for instance, in a first appointment, know that they're going to ask you, like, have you been in therapy before? Are you on any medications? And if the answers are yes, it's going to be like, what medications? And uh, what were you in therapy before? You know, what were you working on in therapy before? And do you want me to contact that old therapist? And what are the things you liked and didn't like about that experience? You know, they're going to ask stuff like that. And then they're going to say, you know, well, what brought you in? What prompted you calling me and wanting to set up this appointment? And you'll say, I just been feeling like shit and I, I hate waking up in the morning. I'm down. 
And they'll say, you know, then they're going to ask questions because it sounds a little bit like depression potentially. So it'd be like, how long has this been going on? And have you seen changes in your appetite? Are you sleeping more or less than usual? You know, do you enjoy the things you used to enjoy? Are there hobbies that you have? They're going to have some questions they're going to ask. So you don't have to know what the goal is. You just have to know that you just don't like how you feel. That's it. It can, you could even come into therapy and say, I just want to gain some new perspective. I'm feeling stuck. That's enough. So you don't have to know. Um, they'll, they'll work with what you do know. And together we'll discover what, what the goals are and what we can work towards. So don't think that you have to have a formulated goal. That's completely not necessary. That's part of the therapy discovery process. I hope those answers were helpful. You guys, thank you so much for sending them in. Um, have a happy new year. I hope you enjoy the time off. I hope you're getting to spend some time with some loved ones, at least in a safe way or over Zoom or something. I know we're all really needing that connection. I hope you're being safe out there. I love you all. 2021 is going to be a wonderful year for us. And you know why? Because we're putting it out there. We're going to work on it. We're going to change those thoughts and be a little bit more positive each and every day, a little bit more balanced in our thinking. And it'll get better. Because with the right support, right, it can and will get better. I love you. I love you. I love you. Have a wonderful rest of your week and I will see you next time. Bye. Or why you've hit a plateau. Inquire all those questions you've always wanted to know.